Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. By their late 50s, most people who are destined to become famous have achieved some measure of success. But that's most people. This is a story of a woman who, at 57, had nightmares, anxiety, almost no money, and definitely no fame. Her name was Laura Ingalls Wilder. Wilder would become a creator of books, a recreator of her own life, and someone who helped shape our vision of the American frontier. The weather changed, and the air got sharp and clear. Pa said we could expect a cold winter because the fox and muskrats and beavers were growing heavy fur. Even before the TV version of A Little House on the Prairie captivated viewers around the world, the books had sold millions of copies, inspired cookbooks and dolls and animated versions. And for many children living through the Depression or World War II, the books did something else that was rather striking. They replaced the emblematic frontier image of Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone with the image of a woman. Caroline Fraser tells the real and largely unknown story of Wilder in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Caroline, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, One of the things I didn't realize before I read your book was that um, the story that she tells, if you read those books when you were a kid, um, it was an incredibly kind of optimistic version of this very, very poor, almost destitute childhood that she had. Um, And that, in, in fact, growing up in the 1870s, like on a farm in the upper Midwest, it was not easy. No, it sure wasn't. And uh, the really grim reality of, of homesteading is something I think we've lost sight of. In my own family, had always had kind of a little bit of a sense of it because my grandparents were all farmers in the Midwest mm-hmm. and couldn't get out of there fast enough. I mean, <laughs> the stories that they told about farming were, were so grim and really emphasized what a, what a terribly sort of almost brutal lifestyle it was to be farming in, in places where the weather was uh, not reliable, um, not super friendly to uh, these often huge families who, who were trying to uh, raise wheat in, in areas that were maybe not well designed for that that it really gave me always, I think, a sense that there was more to the story behind the little right. house books, even even though I loved them. Why do you think she um, put that kind of gloss on it? Like, you know, I mean, I think people who read the books almost think that the life that she talks about is like a life to aspire to, a life where people are happy and love each other. But when you talk, you know, when you talk about the reality of it, it it's like people like are, they don't know if they're going to have enough, you know, food to get through the day or the week. Um, why uh, make people aspire to something that she knew wasn't all that great? Well, she always had a very keen sense of the fact that she was writing for children. Hmm. And so she did leave out a lot of the darker aspects of of, uh, the lifestyle because she felt they were inappropriate. But I also think the fact that she was writing these books during the Depression really played a big role in how she began to kind of reinterpret her past 
because she disapproved quite strongly of people accepting aid from the government, for example, which is which is ironic because, of course, her family had done so uh, through the Homestead Act, right. which is one of the biggest, you know, giveaways in, in American history. So We're just giving away land at, was, <laughs> yes. was it like $1.25 an acre? What, what, what was the cost on the land? Well, it's it changed at various points, but, um, you know, the Homestead Act, if you filed a claim on 160 acres, all you had to pay up front was, you know, a filing fee, which was, I think, in in, uh, Charles Ingalls' case, was like $14. Okay. And then you got the land if you proved up on it after five years, if you were able to to stay on it and build a dwelling Hmm. and and plow some land. Um, So it it essentially was a a giveaway. Hmm. And so why she didn't see that as of a piece with the kind of government relief that was happening during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression is is a bit of a question. Uh, but she certainly, I think, felt that it was part of, of the job of these books to portray a life where people just had to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why they became so popular during mm. the Depression. So so part of the idea is like you can do it yourself, even if that wasn't quite actually accurate. Right. It was like that was the message. You can do it yourself. Right. And, and you know, Americans have always had this kind of love affair with the idea of self-reliance. Right. We want to believe that's what we are, even when it's not true. Let's talk for a second about um, how these books got written in the first place, because, you know, for most of Laura Ingalls Wilder's life, she was poor. She was kind of working to get herself out of um, difficult situations. She uh, married Almanzo Wilder, but he had a stroke in his 20s. How, when she was, you know, just about 60 years old, did these books start getting written? Well, that in, in it is a story in itself and, and a fascinating one, I think, because a lot of people have assumed that all of a sudden, you know, she sits down at the age of, of 60 and starts writing her memoirs. But uh, in fact, it was a, a much longer evolution than that. Uh, she really had ambitions, I think, even as a young woman, to be a writer uh, and began talking to her daughter, who is uh, Rose Wilder Lane. And her daughter, after graduating from high school, became a telegrapher, ended up in San Francisco, and almost immediately became a journalist in in San Francisco writing for newspapers. Now, the kind of journalist that she was (laughs) was a very uh, different um, kind than than, uh, we would consider to be a legitimate writer today. I mean, she worked for these newspapers that were essentially part of the history of of yellow journalism. The San Francisco Bulletin was where she worked. But I think that that, uh, from the very beginning, she was encouraging her mother to start writing as well because uh, Rose saw the easy money to be made writing for newspapers, which were a much bigger deal at that point than they are now, and and there was a lot more money in it. and, And Laura did, in fact you know, beginning in around 1910s, start writing for a farm paper, the Missouri Ruralist. So it wasn't like she just all of a sudden sat down when she was 60 and started writing. She she had really served quite a, a number of years writing for newspapers. 
Uh, you write that when she started, you know, sort of jotting down what she remembered and writing these books, that it was so hard and painful for her to relive her childhood that it was it was like a really traumatic experience in some ways to get started on these books. Yeah, she clearly had, you know, in the intervening decades, had not spent a lot of time kind of agonizing over what uh, had happened and, and about her loss of her you know, parents, her, her father died when about 10 years after she and her husband had left the area. So she didn't get to see him for many years. And I think that things like uh, her sister Mary's blindness, her sister Mary became ill as a teenager and went blind. Those things were incredibly hard for her to revisit. You know, I think that once she had started the process of thinking about those things, she almost couldn't stop thinking about it, and it would keep her awake at night. And I think she also really wrestled with the fact that her father was not as successful as she might have wished he had been, and and that he experienced a lot of failures and, and had a lot of debts, and she really wanted to kind of write all that out of the story, which, in fact, she did. One of the things that I don't know if she struggled with portraying it, but she certainly talks about the Native Americans who lived around where she lived when she was a child and her portrayal of those people has been, especially in recent years, has been um, incredibly controversial and criticized. The American Library Association changed the name of uh, an award that was that has long been named after her because they felt like um, that her books reflected, this is a quote, uh, racist and anti-Native sentiments and are not universally embraced. You know, first of all, I wonder... When she wrote these books, which was uh, quite a long time, like 50 years or more after she had actually experienced the thing, the, the you know, actually like been a child, um, how did she think about portraying um, Native Americans, African Americans who also, you know, show up in the books? Uh, yeah, just give me a sense of like, did she struggle with that at all? I don't think so. I think that she wanted to record her memories and her most some of the most dramatic memories that she had concerned the period of time when the family was in Kansas. And it was there that they encountered the Osage Indians whose land they were living on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am not sure how much she recognized how transgressive her father's actions were, but she did know that he didn't own the land that, you know, Charles Ingalls built the little house on the prairie on. (laughs) She did Hmm. know that. She knew that her father was a squatter on that land. But I don't think she had any kind of intellectual, you know, understanding of, of what she was writing about or the history. She just wanted to record her memories. And I think that what people are, are grappling with now is, you know, that we see her very romanticized view of Indians in, in a very different way than readers saw it in, in 1935. Mm-hmm. What do you think, like when you see as somebody who's 
you know, her biographer, when you see, you know, awards like with her name and then her name is taken off, what do you think of that? Well, one of the things that I think is important is that this is a process that's been going on, uh, kind of the the revisionist thinking about the, the Little House on the Prairie in particular has been going on since the 1950s. You know, her editor, Ursula Nordstrom, who, who is one of the most famous figures in children's literature, asked her to change one of the sentences in Little House on the Prairie to reflect the fact that, that there were Indians living on the, on the land. Wilder had written there were no people there, <laughs> and, and they changed it to read there were no settlers hmm. there. And so this has, has really been going on for a long time, and I think it finally came to a head recently because librarians felt that because they serve children, that they needed to have an award that reflected a wider and more inclusive audience than, than simply uh, an award that was named for Laura Ingalls Wilder. So uh, they made it clear when they changed the name of their award that they didn't intend this to be censorship. You know, they weren't trying to say, don't read these books. They were just saying, we feel that we need to serve all children in, in a way that is inclusive. So I don't really have a, a problem with the fact that they changed the name. I, I do have a problem with, with uh, attempts to censor the books. I think it's a different question to ask, should the, the books be taught in school, mm-hmm. than it is to ask, should children read them? Mm-hmm. When did you first start uh, reading the Little House books? Do you remember? You know, I think I was eight or nine. Okay. Um, my sister had read them first and, and loved them and kind of passed them along to me. And did you become, like, were you just a, a, a normal sort of person who liked them? Or did you become, I, I mean, since you have now written this huge biography of uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, did you become more interested in the stories and who she really was than your average child. <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't normal. <laughs> no, I, I read them uh, over and over again and, and loved them. Uh, and I think a lot of fans feel that as, as kids. The books are so interesting because they're, they're full of all these kind of terrifying episodes. You know, there are blizzards and, and the locust plague and, you know, they're full of all kinds of disasters. And yet there's something incredibly comforting about them to kids. And you hear this over and over again when you talk to, to people who have been fans. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing that, that Wilder achieved, I think, in, in the writing was, was to tell something of the real story of how hard their life was well, at the same time, suggesting that it's all going to be okay, mm-hmm. you know, that it's all going to work out in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both the books and the TV show um, had these huge and, and very diverse fan bases. Um, you write, and this, like, amazed me, 
that Ronald Reagan cried in the White House watching the TV show, um, that the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was a fan, uh, that former vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin's kids remembered those books, the Little House books, as the books that they had read when they were kids. Um, it, it It's kind of staggering, the uh, broad draw of this story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it just it continues to be a perennially popular series, and and the writing in it is in them is is so beautiful that that even though I think now kids are very aware of the fact that they're you know the books are full of stereotypes and and there there are things in them that you wouldn't see in books published today, but they also just give you a remarkable glimpse of what life must have been like for people of a, of a previous era. And, and they're just, they're so moving. You know, I, I, it's hard to understate that because they're just a, a very powerful portrayal of, of a girl growing up and becoming her own person, uh, becoming uh, a really powerful person in her own right. And that, I think, remains very important to a lot of women. When you think about, like, what the defining legacy of um, the Little House books uh, is, what what do you think that, that legacy is? Well, I think one of the things that, that remains really important to me, and I think a lot of the readers, is the portrait of the relationship between Laura and her father. I think that that's one of the most moving aspects of these books. And it's unusual because a lot of children's literature doesn't focus very much on fathers. Fathers are often uh, absent or missing or uh, disappeared in, in children's books, or there's a lot of bad fathers in some books. So I think that that remains a, a kind of um, untouchable part of her legacy. But certainly the way that she has made us think about our own past, about how settlers moved across the land and what happened to them when they did. You know, if you read these books as an adult, I think it becomes clear that the story was actually more complicated. And there's a lot of hints at that. You know, there's a lot of suggestions that the project that was represented by the Homestead Act did not really work out for a lot of people. So I think I think its legacy, the legacy of the Little House books, is to make us think about our own history and, and question a lot of the assumptions that we have about it. Caroline Fraser is the author of Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you. If you're wondering how else the Little House books have changed America, they've inspired many political conservatives. We'll have more on that at our website, innovationhub.org. <laughs>